continuing in this series in the book of Genesis. But real quick, before we get into the Bible, I have one question. Who has their Christmas tree up already? Anybody? Oh, I knew someone was going to. All right. Can't let things just happen, can we? You know, It's good. Uh, we had a great time um, for trick-or-treat. We went down Hyannis Main Street. They do a safe trick-or-treat there. Um, so that was good to get out with the kids. And God's really just continuing to lay the community on my heart. You know, we need to get out there as a church, get to know people, and, and seek to win people for Christ. So um, we're going to keep praying about that. I think that God is going to give us more ways to do this as a church. We want to be a church of the community. So we're continuing along the book of Genesis, chapter 27. Now, if you not have a copy of the Bible, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. We make our way through the Bible because we believe that the Bible is God's Word. And uh, through the Bible, God teaches us about Himself. He teaches us about ourselves. Uh, the reason we work systematically through the Bible is I believe that every passage of the Bible has a unique thumbprint. There's something in it that God wants to say to us, and he wants us to understand. Before we get into reading the passage, um, I am, as many of you know, a recovering youth pastor. I loved, loved youth ministry. One of my favorite things about it was playing video games until the wee hours of the nights with students. Uh, I know that I ate much, much uh, above the, the recommended limit of Domino's Pizza for a lifetime in about three years. So uh, that's what you do as a youth pastor. But one of the biggest things that I loved about it was seeing God work in the lives of students. You know, as I was working in youth ministry, one of the things, one of the lessons that I learned about youth ministry is that not all ideas go as well in reality as you envision them in your mind. Uh, anybody ever play the game Steal the Bacon growing up? Steal the Bacon? Anybody? Okay. Well, it's not just good enough to play regular Steal the Bacon in youth ministry. You have to put it on steroids. So we decided to do that. It was a great idea. We filled up a tarp with all kinds of gross things. We faced students off head to head. We threw a rope in the middle. We shouted, go. They jumped. They grabbed the rope and they played tug of war until uh, one person brought it to their side. Like I said, not all ideas go as well in reality as you envisioned it in your mind. A couple of lessons I learned. Uh, lesson number one, when you put invisible, intangible points into the mix, students will value the, those more than they will value their own safety. Lesson number two, baby oil was not a good idea to put in the middle of the tarp. Lesson three, boys, for whatever reason, jump head first and ask questions later. And two concussions later, I said, well, steal the bacon is not as fun when someone gets hurt. Now, as I think about that game, I... We're going to see as we look at the Bible passage this morning that there's a game of steal the bacon happening. You see, everyone wants to be a winner. Everyone has a plan. They have a scheme. Everyone wants to wrestle the bacon away from everyone else. And in the book of Genesis, the bacon is the blessing of God. And this story is particularly painful as we look at it because 
The people at odds with one another are family. You know, you look at family and, and you realize that there are a lot of families that are playing the steal the bacon. Dad's got his own thing going on. Mom is getting frustrated with Dad. She's starting to get passive-aggressive and uh, manipulating the situation a little bit. The kids are, well, they're just living out Lord of the Flies because they're doing whatever they want to do. I mean, it gets crazy, doesn't it? The counseling industry is alive and well today partly because of steal the bacon happening with families. In fact, they would call a family that is playing steal the bacon a dysfunctional family, meaning there's a major breakdown in the basic relationships within the family so that the family itself no longer functions properly. And there's five symptoms that are present when a family has become dysfunctional. The first is estrangement. Family members no longer communicate. They avoid each other. Anger, which is either expressed or repressed. Lack of trust seen in the patterns of communication. Deception, the inability to speak the truth to other family members. And unhealthy secrecy, intentionally withholding information from one another. This is what's happening in Genesis 27. There's four characters present, and each one of these characters are presenting one of these types of symptoms. We begin the story with the patriarch, Isaac. Let's read the first four verses. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, Take your weapons from your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, it's interesting when you look at Isaac, he's kind of falling apart at this point in life. He's not aging well. It's interesting, when you look back at Genesis chapter 25, just a page in our Bibles, it talks about how Abraham aged. And the Bible says that he died in a good old age, an old man full of years. Genesis 25, 8. But Isaac, his sight is failing him. He's convinced that he's just falling apart so much so that he calls Esau into his tent so that he can impart the blessing onto him. And you know what makes this scene even stranger is the way that he's going about doing this. In this culture, the blessing was like a legal contract. You didn't just bless someone in the privacy of your tent when no one was around. No, you made it a public affair. You brought people out. They saw the blessing take place. Uh, there was blessings distributed to other sons as well. But no, here in this situation, Isaac wants it done privately. Why the secrecy? Why the lack of transparency? I bet it's because Isaac knows he's doing the wrong thing. You see, Proverbs 28, 18 says this, 
whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. There's something about doing the wrong thing and you know you're doing the wrong thing that makes you want to hide doing the wrong thing. And i got to tell you, when you're doing that, it, it says something about your heart. And what do we learn about Isaac's heart? Well, Isaac's heart is centrally located in his stomach. Talks to us about his insistence on a good meal that's reminiscent of Esau's willingness to trade his own birthright for that soup, the red stuff, the red stuff. The word game is repeated eight times in this section. Savory dish is used six times. You want to know a word that you think would be used a lot about family that is only used one time in this passage, though? Love. And when the word love is used, it's used to describe Isaac's affections towards food. Wow. Isaac loves food. He loves food more than he loves God. He loves food more than he loves his wife. He loves food more than he loves Jacob. He loves food even more than he loves his favorite son Esau. That's the idea we're getting here. And the idea is if he loves food that much, it really means that Isaac loves Isaac more than anyone else. Now, he'd never come out and say that. Uh, he probably doesn't even realize that he thinks that way. He's so spiritually blind to the situation, he can't see much of anything at all. But I'll tell you what, I bet you when the boys are standing around talking about Isaac at his funeral, they're not going to talk about how, God was, or how Isaac was invested in their lives at opportune moments. No, they're going to say something along the lines of, you know, Dad could sure put away the venison like, unlike anyone else I've ever seen before. Wasn't that funny how he did that? Oh boy, you know, I think about that and say to myself, what are my kids going to be standing around talking about at my funeral? I wouldn't want my kid as a parent to say, you know, Dad, he sure loved golf. Sometimes I think that he loved golf more than he loved me. I wouldn't want as a mother, to hear something along the lines of, Mom, well, she just worked and worked and worked. She just wasn't really home a lot when we were children. Or something along the lines of this, um, Dad sure loved um, saying that he would follow God. But for whatever reason, every single Sunday, it just seemed like he couldn't get us to church. There was always something else going on. I think that Isaac led this family into dysfunction by making the, phone, the, the home about Isaac. He made it about himself. And as you look at his leadership in the home, you also see then that he's spiritually blind to matters with his boys. You look back at Genesis chapter 26, verses 34 and 35, and there you see that Esau, his older son, marries not one, but two Hittite women. You might recall what Abraham had said earlier about how Isaac should marry. He should not marry, what, a Canaanite woman. He should not leave the promised land to find a wife. But Esau completely disregards this. Why? What's going on with Esau here? It seems like Esau is disinterested in the things of God. 
Now, I wonder if the overwhelming majority of praise that Esau received from Isaac centered around his abilities, his natural talents to go out there and hunt and provide game and his manliness. You know, you can almost kind of hear the same types of praises coming out of our mouths. Oh, my boy, he's a great son. He's the league leader in scoring right now. Or or my daughter, oh, She's got the highest marks in math class right now. She's going to get into the college of her choice. We're loud in praise there, but then we get a little more muted when it comes to their spirituality. He said yes to God. That's great. Do you hear the value system through their ears? Dad loves me because I'm athletic. Mom wants me to be academic. If I get into the right college, then Mom and Dad will be proud of me. And oh yeah, um, If I can occasionally open up the Bible, that'll make them feel good too. If spiritual things are not your central talking points in the life of your children, there's a strong chance that spiritual things will not make it onto their agenda. You see, Esau was not interested in God because he was never led to be interested in God. Well, here you have two situations, right? So you have this father of this dysfunctional family, and he likes to keep secrets. Now we're going to take a look at the mother who likes to know all of the secrets. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. The text says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before I die. That language there in verse 5, she was listening, leads you to believe that this was a regular reoccurring pattern. Her ear was regularly pressed up against the tent when important conversations were happening. Rebecca is an eavesdropper. And she hears about this plan. And she crafts a plan of her own. Verse 8, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring to me two good young goats so that I may prepare them from uh, delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. This is like passive, aggressive, marital warfare going on here. How did they get like this? You remember the story in Genesis 24, and if you haven't looked at that, read it. It's a great story. Uh, It's a biblical example of love at first sight. The text says that Isaac saw her and he loved her. Rebecca was willing to leave everything to go be married to Isaac. Isaac was pulled out of his despondency after the loss of his mother because of her. But now, 60 years of marriage has passed and and they're not talking. And if they are talking, well, it's never really about the real issues. It's a passive-aggressive game of steal the bacon, a game that they've played a thousand times over in the past 60 years. Married couples, I'm sure you know some of these truths, but they're the type of truths that bear repeating. First, marriage does not work because there's some kind of visible 
magnetism of love between you and your spouse that some couples just seem to have and other couples just don't seem to have. We don't just fall in and out of love as a state of being or something like that. We, we choose to love and we stay committed to certain foundational principles. You know, this is a prime example of the fact that love at first sight and this invisible magnetism just doesn't produce a healthy marriage. Rebecca and Isaac had that. But time took it away. Why? Because they stopped following these priorities, like pursuing their relationship with God. And I would say to you as Christians today, being active in church community, I talk about this principle every Sunday. If you're not on vacation, uh, you should be in church. You should be in community with the people of God. Have a common vision for the home, for your budget, uh, for your children's future. Keep the lines of communication open. Learn how to fight well. You think, well, what are you saying? Fight with your spouse? I'm saying, yes, but do it the right way. Because sometimes you are going to disagree, but how do you get to understanding? Spend time together. Show acts of love and kindness towards one another. Maintain intimacy in your marriage. And husbands, I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about intimacy. Getting to know the heart of another person and loving that heart. It's been a long time since these things had happened in the life of Isaac and Rebecca. And you see that this uh, division was created because they started making the home about the kids and they chose different kids. You see this once again in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5 it says, Isaac said to his son Esau, verse 6, Rebecca said to her son, Jacob, it's all about the boys, and they like different boys. Katie and I made a decision a long time ago in our marriage, and we haven't really been married that long, but it feels like a long time for her, not for me. It feels like just yesterday because it's been the perfect marriage. But um, one of the things that we said when we were getting married, we said we want to prioritize our relationship to one another over other relationships. Now, not with God, of course. God is the number one relationship. But we would love, we would respect, we would honor mom and dad. And you should do that. You should honor your parents. You should not cast them out of your life. Be there for them. But my marriage is more important than my relationship with my parents. The same goes for my children. My children will often come up to me and they'll say, Daddy, who do you love most in the world? And when I answer that question, I say it like this. I love God the most. I love your mom the second most. I love you guys the third most. And then they follow that one up with, well, which one of us do you love the most? And I say, I love Fergus the most. And that's my dog. He's cute. Now, all joking aside... I just don't get Isaac and Rebecca in this story. I mean, how could you choose one of your kids? And just a disclaimer, he's not one of my kids. He's the dog, okay? But how could you? How do you do that? Friends, do you want to be a great parent? Well, if you're married, it, it begins by choosing to be a great 
spouse. Don't be a better parent than you are a spouse. Your kids actually want you to be a great spouse. Because when you are a great spouse, it brings a stability into the home. But Isaac and Rebecca, they chose a different route. They chose to be great parents to their favorite. And look where that led them. Well, let's take a look at one of the boys. We'll look at Jacob now, verse 11. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Go and bring them to me. Now, Jacob is his mother's son. Uh, He's not worried about the morality of this situation. He's worried about the effectiveness of the plan. He likes the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. So we see there then as the story continues in verses 12 to 14 that uh, or 14 to 17, excuse me, that Rebecca or Jacob goes out, he makes the provisions, Rebecca makes the food, and now, get this, he enters into the tent of a blind man to steal from him. It doesn't sound very good, does it? The story continues, verse 18, so he went into his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am, who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Isaac is already suspicious. Jacob lies multiple times, but the worst of the lies is the fact that he commits blasphemy. He is making God an accomplice when he says, because the Lord your God granted me success today. Notice something else, too, that Jacob says. It might be subtle to you, but it's, it's really bold. He says, the Lord, your God, to Isaac. Your God. Not my God. He won't be Jacob's God yet. That will come about later on. When I was in seminary at Moody Theological Seminary, one of my professors, Dr. Sajan Matthews, talked about how the transmission of faith seems to disintegrate along the generational lines. He talks about in the first generation when someone comes to faith, coming to faith is a sacrifice for them. It's a big part of their life. They have to take steps of faith and obedience that are sacrificial in nature, and then you get to the next generation, and it's more traditional. They think along the lines of, oh, I just loved the way I saw my mother pray in times of stress, and we were always at church, and we'd always have the Bible open. That's really important to me. And then you'd come to that third generation where it gets a little more convenient. You know, faith has been a part of our family, and I casually, occasionally check into church from time to time, and then you have that fourth generation where it's now inconvenient. I never really saw it lived out. I'm not too interested in it. It doesn't seem real. Think about the family dynamic here. Abraham, it's sacrificial. Isaac, it's traditional. And I would submit to you 
that with Jacob, it's bordering on convenient. He wants the blessings of God, but that's about it. So the story continues. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and ate and he brought him wine and he drank. You you feel the tension in the room. You have this spiritually blind man who's trying to discern through all of his senses right now. He's lost the one sense that he was really guided by his sight Now his hearing's not doing too well either. It sounds like Jacob, but uh, maybe this is Esau. But now that I touch him, it feels like Esau. But then you bring in his favorite sense, which is taste. It always comes back to food for him. Kent Hughes writes this. Now when Jacob's lies are complete, the old glutton commenced eating, smacking his lips, guzzling the vintage wine and drizzling over his immense white beard. It's kind of gross when you think about it. He loves his senses. Well, the final sense that lets him down is the sense of smell. Verse 26, Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. There's three aspects of this blessing. There's personal prosperity, there's preeminence, and there's protection from God. Jacob, whose name means the heel grabber, has taken the blessing that is rightfully his, but he grabbed it the wrong way. He grabbed the blessing of God the wrong way. Esau will later say this, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he is taking away my blessing. If God intends for you to have something, do you need to grab for it? Do you need to deceive and take it? Will you be able to enjoy God's blessing and fulfill His purpose for your life if you steal the bacon for yourself? The answer is, don't grab for it. Don't do anything to force it. Don't scheme or plot or maneuver to make it happen. Don't be like Jacob. 
the heel grabber. Someone who puts others behind him so that he can be first. Someone who wants to get ahead. Someone that you have to watch your back when you're around. Why are we tempted to grab? Why do you grab? Why, why do I grab? I think it's because we're impatient with God's timing. The more I've been walking in this Christian life, I believe that waiting is one of the hardest things Things for us to do, especially when we live in this instant generation that we live in. We want a family so badly that we jump the gun and we live together, or we marry the person that is not God's best for us. We want that job so badly that we polish up the resume and insert a half-truth or what I would call a full lie. We want our kids to prosper so badly. We want their future to be so good that when they get themselves into a jam, we're just all too ready to jump in and pull them out of the jam instead of allowing them to go through the process that will let God teach them the lessons that He has for them. We want God's blessings so badly that we grab for it, we force it. We want to get it now. We want to steal the bacon. If we sin to make God's purposes happen, if we compromise ourselves to get it, we only end up creating turmoil and regret. You see, I think that in this story here, I think Jacob thinks that he just won. But did he win? Well, let's keep reading. Let's see what happens. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. I love how the Bible deals with time. You know, there's no coincidences in the Bible. One's leaving the tent, the other's coming in because God is moving in the situation. Verse 31, he also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightfully named Jacob, for he has cheated me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing from me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I had given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Isn't it ironic that Isaac sought to give Esau all the blessing, and now he has nothing left to give to him? And Esau rightfully understands the character of Jacob, when he calls him the heel grabber, but he's a little gentler on himself. He doesn't remember that he sold his birthright for a bowl of the red stuff. The story keeps going on. 
Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. The blessing that Esau receives is actually an antsy blessing. It's a blessing that substantiates the fact that Jacob has it all now. And when he hears those words come out of his father's mouth, it sears a hatred and an anger in his heart. I mean, just think about his situation for a moment. You grow up your whole life, you're told that all of these things are going to be yours, that you are going to be a success, you're going to be the shining star, and now you're hearing from your own father's mouth that your life is going to be a drudgery and a struggle. And you think about every single word as it hits him, and he's honing in on one target and one target alone. Jacob. I hate him. I hate her. Have you ever felt that disdain in your heart for another person? They become the focal point of your thoughts. You daydream about how you might get back at them. They have brought misery into your life. Now it's your singular goal and purpose to bring misery back into their life. This is a difficult emotion to own up to, but hatred is an emotion that many of us have felt at some point, and it's a vicious emotion because it feeds itself. The more that I think about hating someone and why I hate them, the more I hate them. And it's also one of those emotions that feels really good to grab hold of and keep a hold of. And yet, the only way to find relief from it is to actually let go of your grip. Esau let his mind run to dark places Verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. This game of steal the bacon has gone wrong. This family dysfunction, mom and dad have not been on the same page for a long time. And like I said, now Lord of the Flies is happening within the family. Parents, this is why you have to have a unity of vision for the home, a common purpose, a set of standards and expectations. It's also why uh, we need to understand something like this, that relationships in the home don't just happen successfully. It doesn't just happen. Your kids don't just, you know, fall naturally into relating well together. I mean, you know this, right? I mean, your, your child is growing up. No one had to teach them the word mine. But you spend years teaching them the words please and thank you. You have to cultivate the relationships between your children. You have to work hard at it. 
Or what about forgiveness? In our household, we have taken our kids through a series of steps to get them to understand what a real apology looks like. If you've ever offended someone in the home, in our home, you, you go up to the person you offended, you look them in the eye, you say, I am sorry for, for. And then you name what you did. And then you look at them and you say, I commit to not doing that again. And then the person who's been offended should look back at the person that's extending the apology and say, I forgive you. And then hug it out and go back to being kids again. But if kids are not taught to relate well to one another, if mom and dad never get on the same page in that way, hurt can happen. Brothers can stop talking for days. And then days turn into months. And then months turn into years. And then years becomes time and distance where you don't really even have anything to say to one another anymore. And then it's mom's funeral. And instead of reminiscing and and thinking about all the blessing that you had in life together, there's tension in the relationship. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we watch this story and think about our own story is, when we play family steal the bacon, who wins? Does anyone win? You might think that people win. I mean, Isaac got a bowl or got some good food out of it, didn't he? He was eating his little heart content. Rebecca's plan, well, it was flawless. It was well designed. Uh, Jacob, well, he's a shrewd individual. He executed that deception like a pro. And and Esau, well, it doesn't look like he wins, but he's going to win later because he's going to kill Jacob. So who actually won the bitter game of steal the bacon? Well, as the story unravels more, you read on in this text, and it tells us that Rebecca learns of Esau's plot. She finally does what she should have done a long time ago. She goes and she confronts Isaac, only she's still not talking about the real issue. She talks about Jacob's need to marry someone from Haran instead of talking about the divisiveness that is going on between the boys. Isaac, in turn, does another thing that God did not wish to happen. He sends the son of promise out of the promised land. And then the rest of the story plays like a movie reel. Jacob is away from the family for 20 years. Esau continues to grow more distant from God and he continues to make serious mistakes in his walk with God. You see that in Genesis chapter 28, verses 6 through 9. Rebecca becomes a footnote in the story of Genesis. Jacob, her favorite son, is away so long that she dies and she never sees him again. Isaac is gapped over, barely mentioned again in the story. So let me ask you the question who won? Who won the game of steal the bacon? Nobody won. Everyone loses when families break down, fight one another, and no longer talk to one another. Can I ask you some painful questions? When was the last time you spoke to that family member you're struggling with? How long ago did that event occur that you just can't let go of? How has it helped your heart to hold on to that anger? 
If a funeral were to happen in your family dynamic soon, would it be a time of members coming together to mutually comfort one another, or would it be strained and awkward? Have you been playing steal the bacon? And if yes, who's winning right now? You know, God did not design the family to be dysfunctional. He didn't. Family he created to be our home, our community, our support network, our deepest relationships. Listen, if you have family struggles going on right now, a rough family dynamic, I want to challenge you to do three things. First, I want to challenge you to start praying that God would heal what is broken. Second, I want to challenge you to ask God for the strength to make you a reconciler in the relationship. And third, I want to challenge you to be an initiator for the repair. Someone has to be willing to take the first step. And God wants Christians to take the first step. Because through the example of Jesus, he showed us that he's willing to take a billion steps towards us. So we can do the same Let me ask you one more question as you think about this story. Envision the story in your mind and ask yourself the question, what is missing in this picture, this story? What's missing? Maybe you've seen that that video, it's an awareness test. The video opens up. And it says this is an awareness test and then there's people wearing white uniforms and there's people wearing black uniforms and they say count all the passes that happened between those who are wearing white uniforms. And so you get really locked in and focused on the scene and you see the passes going back and forth, back and forth, and you just count away. And uh, you get to the end of the video and you feel pretty good about yourself because you counted all the passes that have happened. You're really sharp. You're really aware. However, the video doesn't stop there. It keeps playing, and it asks you if you noticed something significant. While you were so focused on the passes, did you notice that there was a guy in a bear costume moonwalking across the basketball court? And the sad thing is, a lot of people don't see it. In fact, I didn't see it the first time that I saw it. We can get so focused on the details and the peripheral issues that we miss the glaringly obvious. In the case of Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, and I want to say this reverently, the bear in the costume is God. You see, they're playing a game of steal the bacon with God's blessing, yet no one is involving God in the situation. Isaac's determining for God. Rebecca's seeking to manipulate the situation because God's not getting it done. Jacob wants the blessings of God, but he wants to steal them. Esau wants the blessings of God, and he's willing to kill for them. Everyone wants God's blessings, but no one wants to love God, obey God, or have God be involved in the situation. No one actually wants God. This is the big point of Genesis 27. You cannot choose who God will bless, manipulate God's timing, deceive to get God's blessing, use force to get God's blessing. God gives his blessing out of his goodness, his riches, his generosity, and his time for his purposes. I wonder if many of us are struggling today because 
We want the blessings of God, but we're missing the glaringly obvious. If you want the blessings of God, you must first have God. He's the point. He's the one who created life, sustains life, imbues purpose in life, provides blessings in life. Too often, we get so heavily focused on the blessings that we miss out on God himself. Abraham didn't miss out on God. James chapter 2 says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is the part I love. And he was called a friend of God. Are you a friend of God? Do you know him? Is he someone you talk to when you need things? Or someone that's a part of your life, that you're doing life with, that you're walking with? This is the point for your family too. Instead of playing steal the bacon, why not trust God to fix that situation and let him do it in his time? I wish Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau knew that. I hope we know it. He's the God who can richly bless, who can keep his promises. He has a plan for every life. And there's a time in his plan when he will bring about the blessings that he has promised. So there's no need to play the game. We win when we trust him. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this time in your word and I know that when we talk about a subject such as family, Lord, that for many of us it opens up a lot of different thoughts and emotions. Uh, Lord, you created family to be the biggest, one of the biggest blessings in our lives, and yet, because of sin in the world, sometimes family is the greatest source of pain in our life. I want to pray for those who are struggling right now and just ask God that you would meet them in their place of struggle. A God, that they would turn that over to you and trust you with their situation. But, but more importantly than that, more important than the individual situations that we face, Lord, would you help us to see you? It's all about you, God. Everything works, this universe works when, when man has faith in God. We know, Lord, that we come into that faith relationship through your son, Jesus, when we trust that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again to new life. So if there's someone here today that hasn't made that commitment to you, I pray that they would now. They would trust you. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.